The year is 1848. It's early fall, late afternoon. A group of men are working on building a railroad in southern Vermont. It's exhausting work, entailing leveling the ground and blasting rocks. Today is a typical day. The workers have to blast through a rock outcropping to create a level surface for the train track. But what happened on that particular afternoon was not typical and will be remembered for years to come. A young man named Phineas Gage sets to work on preparing the rock for demolition. This involves boring a deep hole, filling it with blast powder, and then packing it down with a tamping iron, a long, sharp pole a few feet long. As he was working, something behind him momentarily distracted him. That was all it took. A metallic tamping iron came into contact with the rock and made a spark. The powder ignited, sending the iron like a javelin straight through Gage's skull, taking a segment of his brain with it. I'm Nina Streminger. I'm a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and I study morality and ethics and issues related to those topics. Nina is very familiar with psychology, ethics, morality, emotions, and understanding the identity and the self. Like many with an interest in psychology, Nina is very familiar with the story of Gage's accident and what happened shortly afterwards. It went right through his eye. Uh, through his brain and came out the back of his head, uh, really maybe more like the top of his head. And uh, miraculously, he survived. In fact, I don't think he even was unconscious uh, for any of it. The doctor was able to patch together his skull, removing bone fragments and even more damaged brain. Um, and at first, everyone was just focused on the fact that he was still alive, or right? he had somehow made it through this uh, grisly accident alive. But after, he, you know, he began to recover, people who knew him noticed that he began to act differently. Um, and in a very specific set of ways. Just, and it's not just that he didn't, you know, it wasn't a, a disturbance to his mood. You know, he, did, he didn't become depressed. His intelligence seemed intact, right? He still seemed capable of doing his, uh, his work. But there were these very specific set of behavioral changes um, related to, um, you know, he seemed to become short-tempered. He no longer could uh, perform these sort of highly complex tasks. I, I should also add that over the years, the story of Phineas Gage has become kind of embellished and exaggerated, and I'm a little bit self-conscious of doing that now, um, just because the way that this is often presented is he became uh, a jerk and his personality totally changed. But actually, when you go back and look at what was recorded um, by his neurologist at the time, it was a very, a much more specific set of behaviors that seemed to be associated, we now know, with the functioning of the prefrontal cortex, uh, and more specifically, the orbitofrontal prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain right behind the eyes. It, it impacts, uh, at least in part, um, your social and moral behavior. It's no surprise then, after losing a large chunk of his brain from this area, that his behavior would change. And a part of why this is notable um, is that, you know, people who knew him said, you know, Gage is no longer Gage. He just, there's something about, yeah, like, you know, in many ways he's still a functioning human being, but he's not the Gage I used to know. He's not the person he once was. The loss of part of his brain fundamentally changed who he was, his selfhood, at least in the eyes of the people who knew him best. Luckily, accidents like this are relatively rare. However, diseases such as dementia and Alzheimer's affect the brain. Right now, a staggering 10% of people aged 65 and older have Alzheimer's, and around 50 million people have dementia around the world. One of these is my grandmother. There's many types of dementia. Dementia really is, in many ways, a, a word that's used just as sort of a catch-all for some sort of degeneration of the brain um, that's leading to um, a degradation of cognitive capacities. 
These people aren't missing parts of their brain, like in Phineas Gage's case. But it's natural to ask, like Phineas, how does their behavior change when a large segment of their brain is affected? Would their friends and family describe them as different people? Have they lost their sense of self, at least in the eyes of onlookers? It's hard to see the woman I knew growing up in my grandmother now, especially as her dementia progresses. But is she actually a different person? Has her behavior changed so much that I could say that? Do I even have the right to say that? These things I really don't know. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the story of science and technology, how it is related to society, history, culture, art, religion, the future, and today, philosophy, ethics, morality, emotions, and the people we love. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. The first thing to ask is what part of the brain is affected by dementia, Alzheimer's, and other diseases of the brain? For frontotemporal dementia, um, which as the name suggests, affects the frontal and temporal lobes, the symptoms can be similar to what um, to the symptoms that Phineas Gage evinced. Uh, but there's other forms of dementia as well. I mean, probably the most well-known and, and certainly the most common is Alzheimer's, um, which primarily, although not exclusively, impacts memories. Understanding exactly how a patient is suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia is not so simple. These diseases have been around as long as we can remember, but we're just beginning to understand them and they can affect different people very differently. When you look at uh, how patients who have the diagnoses are affected in the real world, um, it's actually very messy. And so you can have two patients who both have a, a diagnosis or meet the diagnostic criteria of Alzheimer's and have completely, or largely, I mean, basically sort of non-overlapping set of symptoms. And then there's dementia. While we have labels for various types of dementia, it's still hard to predict how any one person will be affected. Frontotemporal dementia also, there's two subtypes. One is called a behavioral subtype, and that's the one that more impacts uh, social and moral decision-making, higher order cognition in the kind of gauge sense. But there's another type of uh, frontotemporal dementia that's more in the temporal lobes um, that impacts uh, memories and, and so forth. And so actually doesn't really resemble the, the more frontal types of, uh, the behavioral subtype of frontotemporal dementia as much. There's lots of people who have Alzheimer's or other, some other form of just generic uh, age-related dementia who experience some sort of personality changes uh, or difficulty with now moral and social reasoning uh, as a result of the dementia. And that's not just limited to the behavioral subtype of frontotemporal dementia. Not every case of brain disease causes a person to change so drastically that their loved ones would say they're a different person. But sadly, in some cases, it does. It's heartbreaking to feel that person that you spent your life with has changed, and you no longer see the person you fell in love with, or the parent that raised you. They could be violent or withdrawn. It's hard to remember the person they used to be. When they say that this person is different, what kind of things are they looking at that they can pinpoint that say, that's what makes that person that person, that's what makes you you? Yeah. So it's interesting, right, because I think there is a sort of a culturally widespread notion that Alzheimer's robs you of your identity. And that's part of what makes it so terrifying. In fact, I, I believe that if you ask people, like, you know, what are you most afraid of, of, of getting? Like, what's the disease you're most afraid of getting? People say dementia. 
uh, rather than uh, cancer or heart disease or some of the more common ways actually to die. And people are way more afraid of having Alzheimer's. And I think the reason for that, it's not the prevalence of it, but because there's something that seems really scary about um, perishing in this way, right? Your mind goes before your body. You're really robbed of yourself, your selfhood. And so it's a death that precedes the death of the physical body. But what does being robbed of your identity actually mean? Unfortunately, it's hard to ask someone with advanced dementia or Alzheimer these questions. There's a couple of ways you can understand uh, the intactness of a, of a self or a person's identity. One is the internally lived experience. We don't actually have a lot of, <laughs> we don't have a lot of data on this in part because it's more or less, I mean, unless you had some way of, of experiencing someone else's consciousness, there's kind of no way to get it. Um, the reason I say this is because, you know, maybe if someone's in the beginning part stages of dementia, you can, you can ask them questions about what their experience is like. But um, as you go deeper in, if you're losing your uh, memories, you're not going to be able to report what you used to be like um, or who you used to be. And actually very uh, common, a common symptom of dementia is a denial that you have that anything is wrong. I don't want to say that this has never been studied. It has been. And the results are very mixed on the question of does a person who has dementia feel like they're losing themselves? Yeah, it's just it's not clear. But we can ask their caregivers, their family, spouses, children, and friends. We can ask how they believe that person has changed. Are they the same person inside? But there's another way of understanding uh, the self, and that is how people see you, right? Um, whether someone seems like the same person they used to be. And that's what I've looked at in my research, right? Is that kind of like third-party observation of, does that seem like, you know, the husband that I always knew? How can we, from an external standpoint, define exactly who a person is? There are various ways that we can think to do this. Does a person remember our shared experiences? Does he remember me? Is she still outgoing, like board games, and have a sly sense of humor? Does he still love strawberry pie and black coffee? Is she still someone who would never tell a lie? One way we can look at this is imagine a brain transplant. There was an essay by philosopher Daniel Dennett. In it, he envisioned a hypothetical brain transplant and said that the brain is the only organ where it's better to be the donor than the recipient. Imagine this brain transplant. The donor kindly provides his brain to be placed in a new body. When the subject wakes up, the new body has all of the memories of the donor, not the original patient. Who do you say this person is? I think we would probably agree that this person is now the donor who just happens to have a new body. We are more our minds than our bodies. That's why we have the intuition that if you switch brains with someone, that means, you, you know, yourself would go into the other body. You could think of this as a, asking this at a, at a finer grained level. Is it, um, is it any part of the mind or are there some parts of the mind that contribute more to the self than others? Our memories could potentially be a huge part of who we are. You have experiences, and these experiences build you into the person that you are. The memory of an accident could make you timid. Remembering the first time you hit a home run in Little League could make you willing to take more risks. Remembering the love of your mother could make you a better person. If you actually literally lost all of your memories, then that would also that would mean that you've lost every experience, all learning, 
including any moral learning that you uh, that you had. And so there's a, a sense in which that if you take this really at the kind of most literal sense, the memories they play a huge role. But when we talk about them, that something that happened to you changed you. It's not because you contain necessarily because you contain that memory and you can play that memory in your mind because you can remember it, retrieve it, and so forth. Um, but because the memory seems to have had these other downstream effects on your behavior or your personality or moral traits. In one of our studies, we did something similar to this where we asked, where we said, well, imagine someone gets into a car accident and it's in the kind of near distant future and, and we have a technology where we can replace a, a part of their brain that got damaged with like a microchip. Um, and that they function the same, except they've lost one of the following sets of things. And one of the things we say is they've lost their moral compass. They no longer know the difference between right and wrong. And in another condition, we say uh, they've lost all their memories from before the accident, all their experiences. So episodic memories, really. And then we ask people not only to rate how different would that person be, but also, why did you say that? Because people don't always have good conscious access to why they're saying what they're saying, but we are curious about what explanation or reasoning they were giving. What was the thought process um, that they that they used to arrive at their response? And what we found is that when people say um, that they, the person who had um, um, memory damage was different, the way that they gave their explanation was they explained it in terms of, well, if you lost your memories, then you no longer would you know, love your family, uh, and you no longer would know uh, what was good to do and what was bad to do, and you no longer, you know, and so forth. So they were saying, the reason it's bad to lose your memories is because there's other stuff that then would happen. Uh, it's not because memories itself. Whereas um, the explanations people gave for if you lost your moral compass is, well, because you'd be a monster, and it's bad to be a monster, so you're not yourself. So people seem to only care about memories or the, the idea of losing your memories because of these other ways that it affects their lives, but not for the memory itself. At least so far, we don't have to worry about brain transplants. But you can ask the same question when it comes to diseases of the mind. If people don't remember, does this change them? We can't say for certain whether a person actually changes, but we can look at how others perceive them. Nina looked at exactly this with her collaborator, cognitive scientist and philosopher Sean Nichols. They looked at the caregivers of patients with brain degenerative diseases and asked them, has their loved one changed? And why do you think they are no longer the person they used to be? When we look at the uh, caregivers for people who have a variety of, of different forms of uh, neurodegenerative disease, we focused on, on three, Alzheimer's, frontotemporal dementia, and ALS, which even though it is neurodegenerative, uh, largely impacts voluntary motor control, uh, and therefore, at least in some sense, isn't it as cognitive, right? Um, or maybe you say not as mental. Across these three types of disease, there's a high level of overlap in the symptoms. And so you can compare the different types of dementia and say, you know, uh, which one overall uh, leads to, to the patient seeming the most different. And the answer there is frontotemporal dementia, uh, followed by al Alzheimer's uh, and then followed by ALS. However, uh, there's another maybe you would say, more statistically sophisticated way to um, view data like that is instead of, you know, just saying what's their the patient's diagnostic category, let's look at the symptoms themselves. Because, you know, some of the um, frontotemporal dementia patients have some degree of, of 
of amnesia. Uh, some of the patients with Alzheimer's have some degree of moral or social or personality change that they've experienced. And let's instead just focus on the symptoms. What are the symptoms? What besides memories can make up what we define as the self? What's the most important? Is it what you like or dislike, your preferences, your personality traits, or your moral compass? Basically, the only symptom that's predicting perceived identity change in that patient is the, the extent to which their moral traits have changed. And when I say moral traits, I mean, there's a few ways we measure this, but you can think of it as character trait attributions, like have they, do they seem less honest? Are they less trustworthy? Are they less loyal? Uh, and so forth. Um, or you can look at the symptoms themselves, uh, some of which are clearly related to morality. So uh, people, for instance, with uh, frontotemporal dementia, often they will develop sort of sexual deviances or they'll cheat on their spouses. They will become inveterate liars or they will become overt racists. And so, you know, any sort of trouble with uh, the, any of the normal kind of social niceties, you should go right out the window when you have FTD, which is, uh, stands for frontotemporal dementia. In short, and we were, I should say, we were pretty shocked when we found this because we were expecting, given the previous research we had done, uh, not on patients, but just asking people how different would someone see, you know, hypothetically, how different do you think if your friend changed in this way or that way? And what we found when we asked these hypothetical cases is, yeah, moral trait change matters the most or behavioral change on the moral dimension matters the most, uh, followed by let's say, uh, personality traits that aren't related to morality, so intelligence or creativity, things like that, and then followed by um, the extent to which uh, the person has uh, lost uh, their memories. Indeed, it is shocking. Of course, morality is important. Nina is basically saying that things like shared experiences, personality traits like humor or being an introvert, and even memories have less of an impact than morality on how other people judge you and your selfhood. I must admit, when I looked at the study, I was a bit surprised because I can imagine a husband or wife going to their partner and that partner that's suffering from dementia, let's say they hypothetically forget their entire marriage. They forget who their spouse is. And, well, obviously that's a very big deal for this person. But to say that even if that person becomes immoral, that's actually more important so what makes morality and a sense of morality so important with how we associate with identity? Yeah, well, that's that's the $10,000 question, right? Why is, it, why is this relationship so strong? Well, we have some theories. Um, the, the one that I, I prefer is that if you think about what is the nature of this relationship to begin with or any sort of social relationship we have, you know, um, what's the most important factor that, that we use when uh, choosing uh, who to interact with, who our friends are, who our lovers are, uh, who our business associates are. Moral uh, features, you know, if you had to choose one, are probably primary. And in fact, there are a variety of, of research on this, on like, you know, is it more important to marry someone who's, who's kind or someone who's beautiful or someone who's smart? You know, the, you know, the top thing actually for men and women is uh, someone who's kind. So uh, it might just be that we're very, very keyed into, especially if it's like your spouse or someone that you're very close with, that thing that's the most devastating to your understanding of who that person is actually doesn't have much to do with, you know, their intellectual talents and so forth, or, you know, their ability to do base, perform basic human functions. Um, the thing that was much more important, perhaps, to your relationship uh, were those perceived moral features of the person. 
This reminded me of another podcast I did with Dr. Kyle Stanford, Ice Cream and Nazis, The Origin of Moral Choices. We talked about how morality is really at the basis of how we formed our social communities, how we formed our tribes. And when you see the people around you, you select them for their moral characteristics and it helped bond those people together, whereas the tribe across the river, they had different moral standards, they might form a different bonding. And this is like the basis of society, so it might actually be like a really strong evolutionary thing, and it's really like embedded into the way we work as animals. Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. And I mean, one way of understanding this problem is kind of to flip it on its head. Instead of asking why is morality so important to identity, but ask, why do we keep track of people in the first place? Or why do we even have a sense of identity that this person that I'm interacting with today is the same person I was interacting with yesterday? Um, and evolutionary biologists have pointed out in order for some of the evolutionary building blocks of morality, such as reciprocal altruism, to even emerge, one of the necessary preconditions is you need to be able to keep track of your conspecifics. If you're not keeping track of them and you can't tell which one is which, uh, then you're not going to know, you know, who was nice to you yesterday or who was uh, unkind or who cheated, uh, or who loafed and so forth. And so it might be, um, of course, this is highly speculative, but it might be that the whole reason we have a sense of identity, at least on the third person variety, right, who is Elizabeth and who is Nina, is because we are implicitly in some level and primarily trying to track, you know, uh, their moral status. Instead of talking about the end of life, let's talk about the beginning of life. When you look at babies and toddlers, they don't have a moral compass yet. And so when their parents look at them, they see how they're acting as far as maybe personality. Like, oh, my baby is adventurous or my baby is shy. And so it seems much more a correlation between these personality traits rather than morality at the beginning of life. Have you ever thought about that? And how that correlates? Oh, well, I I actually do, I don't know if I agree with the the premise of your question. I, no, but it's not the things I'm going to say are not based on we ran studies or people have run studies. This is just my hunch. Is that I actually think one of the most basic ways that we understand people, including young children, um, is like you know that kid is nice or mean. I think that's one of the first social judgments that emerges. And, you know, more sort of subtle things like that kid is funny or that kid is shy, they come later. And, you know, so for whatever that's worth. I wasn't so sure if I agreed with that. After all, in my experience with littles, including my own son, I could tell their personality traits first. I could tell one was shy, another was adventurous, another was thoughtful. None of them had developed their moral compass yet. But the problem with interviewing a psychologist is that they turn the question around and start asking you questions. Um, it's true that um, you could say a baby, <laughs> baby doesn't really have much of anything, does it? Um, <laughs> in terms of it, I mean, compared with an adult. But would you say, and I mean, this is, again, sorry, this is just the psychologist in me coming out. Like, as, as he gets older and, you know, hopefully he does develop the normal uh, moral compass and so forth, uh, as that kind of emerges, would you, do you think you would say, like, oh, he changed since he was a baby? He's, he's no longer the baby that I knew. I was beginning to feel like I was the one being analyzed. No, I don't, I don't think I would say that. I think it's just a matter of he's developing and so, you know, he's becoming who he is, right? And so I guess that's fundamentally different from when you're looking at someone who's older 
sometimes people say it's always a process of becoming who you are and who you are is always changing but maybe when you're older some people might think you've already Mm -hmm. reached that point of being who you are and now you're changing into something else and that's no longer who you are in general um there appears to be that there's a concept that uh developmental psychologists have called psychological essentialism that I've sort of been alluding to, but I haven't used the, that. Um, so this idea that there's a potential in a caterpillar to become a butterfly, that's an example of psychological essentialism. The fact that we, that we see it, not that it's there biologically, but that we as you know, human creatures perceive that there's some important sense in which the caterpillar and the butterfly are the same, numerically identical, even if on their, their surface features have changed radically. And, and it appears that um, when it comes to determining, you know, uh, who's, what, some, what something really is, I mean, not just limited to individual persons, but for any kind of, um, um, you know, an artifact or, or anything in the world, our default tends to be we think that the thing that it really is, is whatever its um, best form is. Um, and so that might explain why there's may perhaps like this kind of inverted U shape in terms of, you know, uh, when someone seems fully realized, you know, uh, when you're a, a child, you know, you're becoming the thing that you'll be. Uh, but if you begin to in your dotage, um, as things begin to fall apart, inevitably, cognitively and physically, we say, well, you know, I've, I, I'm not, you know, this isn't my true self, my 80 year old, the 80 year old version of me. Um, this is a degraded version of myself. Hmm. So it's like, you are your best self. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically. Oh, absolutely. There's this appears to be a very, and again, it's not just limited to people, but it does include people where we think, you know, your true self, who you really are. That's the good stuff. Where does this leave me? Where does this leave my grandmother? In her case, luckily, I don't see any moral degradation. She's forgotten a lot, sure. But deep down, she makes the same ethical decisions she always had. For me, that's a relief. I don't know how it would affect my family if she did change that way. But she has forgotten our names. She's forgotten a lot of our shared moments together. And sometimes she just acts downright strange. But can I say she's a different person? I thought a lot about it, and I don't think I can. What Nina has discussed is always what we perceive, not what actually is. We can't go and say that yes, a person has changed, that that person that you knew and loved is no longer there. Perhaps science can't really answer that question. For those of you who know someone who's suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's, my thoughts are with you. Know you're not alone. And believe in the story of the butterfly. Believe that the true person is always their best self. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com. Thanks for joining us, and see us in two weeks for another episode. Some of the background music you heard is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. Other songs are Hidden Truth by Raphael Crux, Dark Hallway by Kevin McLeod, Foam Rubber by Alexander Dakara, Brotherhood by Montplacier, True by Nocturum, and Modem by Kai Engel. They are provided to the Creative Commons license. More information and links to these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.